This is Richard Lim, host of This American President. I just wanted to give a shout out to our latest supporter, John Larson. John, thanks for your support. Uh, We really appreciate it. We really appreciate all of our listeners. If you want to support us, go on Stripe, go on Patreon, go on thisamericanpresident.com, and you can support us. Uh, On thisamericanpresident.com, you can sign up for premium where you can listen to us without having to listen to ads or commercials. So make sure you check us out on Stripe, on Patreon, or on our website, thisamericanpresident.com. And we also wanted to tell you about our book giveaway. Uh, We have an Instagram account. Just look up This American President on Instagram. Uh, We're having book giveaways ongoing. We just announced our winner on Instagram uh, last week. But if you want to get books from some of the best historians in the business, make sure you check out our Instagram and leave a comment on our post and you'll be put into a contest to win a free book. So make sure you check it out on Instagram, thisamericanpresident.com. four to eight years, a new administration takes power in Washington, D.C. Yes, America inaugurates a new president, but he's just the tip of the iceberg. Thousands of people leave their jobs, those who worked for the previous administration, and thousands of people take their jobs. It's a chaotic time of transition where tons of people's lives are uprooted, and it's also a moment of vulnerability for the United States, with the nation's leadership preoccupied in the transition. At the same time, it's one of the most remarkable aspects of American government. The United States has had an impressive record of peaceful transfers of power, going all the way back to 1797 when President George Washington left office and handed power to his successor, John Adams. In his inaugural address, Ronald Reagan said, quote, The orderly transfer of authority as called for in the Constitution routinely takes place as it has for almost two centuries, and few of us stop to think how unique we really are. In the eyes of many in the world, this every four-year ceremony we accept as normal is nothing less than a miracle. But America's unprecedented record of stability doesn't mean that these transitions have been easy. In times past, the outgoing and incoming presidents didn't always get along, And there was friction in the process, especially if they are from opposing parties, and especially if the incoming president had defeated the outgoing president. And the outgoing staffers often have to train the incoming ones, and those relationships can be fraught with tension as well. It might surprise some people that one of the smoothest transitions of power happened in 2008 between two presidents of different parties, Republican George W. Bush and Democrat Barack Obama. As President Obama prepared to transition power to President Trump in 2016, he publicly praised the transition process that happened from Bush to Obama as a model for his team. And our guest today, Professor Peter Fever, has studied that transition, and he actually has just co-edited a book, Handoff, the Foreign Policy George W. Bush Passed to Barack Obama, to reveal the pioneering tactics 
that were involved in that transition and what made it such a success. So Professor Fever, thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks for having me. So first of all, you were actually part of the Bush administration. So in what capacity did you serve? I was uh, hired by Steve Hadley to head up the strategic planning cell in the National Security Council staff in the second term. So when President Bush won re-election in 2004, he started the second term, sh shuffled folks around. Condi Rice, who had been national security advisor, moved over to be secretary of state. Her deputy, Steve Hadley, fleeted up to become national security advisor. And one of the things that Hadley wanted to do was to uh, beef up the ability of the NSC staff to do long-range planning, bigger picture, looking over the horizon. And that's the strategic planning function. And he created a new office just focused on that. And that I headed that up. What are the vulnerabilities that exist in presidential transitions? Well, our allies often comment that the United States is an odd country that conducts a self-imposed lobotomy every four or eight years where an outgoing party leaves the executive branch and with it, all of the senior most leadership, not just the tippy top cabinet level, but thousands and thousands of people at lower to mid level who have been executing the policy, implementing the policy of the previous administration. In a country like, say, UK, the United Kingdom, there, there will be a tiny number of political people at the very top who will leave, uh, but the vast majority of the folks the, uh, is are uh, permanent civil service folks who, you know, one minute will be working for, say, a conservative party prime minister, and then the next minute will be working for a labor uh, party prime minister. But the vast apparatus remains the same. In the United States, we have a much larger handoff or uh, uh, transfer of personnel. And that produces the possibility for chaos, for, for balls being dropped during the handoff, for lines of operation that were uh, almost ripe and almost seeing fruit uh, just being forgotten about or dropped as the new team gets uh, on board. And it's even worse because it takes a while for the new team to be confirmed by the Senate so that they can actually execute their job. And so you can go months, even year uh, in some cases with critical offices that lack the, the political appointees and the senior leadership that they're supposed to have in running it. And that, that's just the risk this country has decided is going to run every uh, four to eight years. Essentially, you you lose institutional knowledge, and I love I love the uh, the analogy to a lobotomy. And at the same time, just to give context, in two thousand and eight, this was the first transition since nine eleven. Uh, so there's always an important concern there as far as the vulnerabilities that existed at the time. Precisely. So the, the transition in peacetime is is challenging enough. Transition during wartime, uh, and in in the post 9-11 era, in the terrorist time, time of, of credible threats of terrorist activity, it's even more daunting. So the 2008 transition, as the administration came to uh, look forward, and, you know, in a sense, that that question 
was seized by my, the strategic planning office that I run because that's the kind of long-range planning question that, well, the rest of the White House is focused on the president's next meeting. You know, looking ahead, you can tell eventually the president's going to leave office. So what do we do about the transition? That question was seen as even more urgent uh, in the second Bush term. I'd make one further point. The transition from Clinton to Bush, so the previous one, had been a little bit rocky, in part because the election results took some while to settle, right? It, we didn't know at the by you know midnight of election day who was going to be president. It took some time for the Florida vote to to be resolved. And that delayed somewhat the transition planning and transition execution. Uh, and that that was not great. Uh, President Bush, though, experienced it and said, we, we can do better. And that was the purpose of the directive that he gave his team. He said, let us, let's, let's do better than uh, 2000 to, to 2001. And indeed, let's try to set the gold standard for how to hand off power. And this, this directive came from the president well before we knew who was going to be the next president. It could have been a Republican, could have been a Democrat for all the White House knew at the time that they started this process. So this was not a partisan question. This this was just a how do we prepare the next team, whoever the team will be, to take over. What, what did previous presidential transitions look like? I mean, making the 2008-2009 transition the gold standard kind of assumes that, okay, in previous administrations, there were a lot of issues that they didn't get right that we want to avoid. But at the same time, America had been doing these transitions for over two centuries at that point. So uh, what did you know about previous transitions? And and of course, there have been difficult ones previously. You know, you think about maybe the most difficult Buchanan to Lincoln when the, when the, the South seceded. And then there was a Hoover to Roosevelt during the Depression. But yeah, what, what did you guys know about historical, uh, the historical data? Well, the, the relevant historical comparative period is the period of the Presidential Records Act. So that's an obscure law that, that Americans have learned a lot about in the last year or two because of the controversy surrounding um, the documents that President Trump took with him to Mar-a-Lago. But the way the Presidential Records Act is supposed to work and and indeed, the way it worked in the years before 2008, what would happen is that at a, a, the morning of Inauguration Day, as the team was going to the Capitol Hill to participate in the ceremony of inaugurating the new president, movers were showing up at the White House and carting out all the boxes of files of presidential papers that the outgoing administration had created. And when the new team came back from Capitol Hill and sat in their new office and they opened the safe, the safe was empty. There's no more papers there. The papers had all been moved as presidential records to the archives of the outgoing administration. So that meant that you were starting with a uh, an apparently blank slate. Of course, the U.S. had commitments, had ongoing lines of operation. Those things still um, were happening. But the paper that described them, what we were trying to do, what promises we had made, all of that, that paper was gone. Moreover, 
uh, the people who had been responsible for doing that paperwork, uh, not paperwork, but managing that process, many of them were gone too because they served at the pleasure of the outgoing president. And the n- incoming people were were not privy, in fact, did not have security clearances that would have allowed them to have access to what w- what was happening. And so you, y- the incoming team would have to scramble quickly to catch up. Now, uh, I don't want to exaggerate it too much. There's obviously people in the civil service, particularly in the departments and agencies, who remained, who were familiar with what's happening, and they might have paper documents that you could cobble together if you found them and they got they briefed you up on what was happening. But it's a heck of a way to start the process of running the the leading global superpowers foreign policy from the get-go. And so one of the things that um, Steve Hadley, who was running this process for uh, President Bush, at least within the national security domain, what Steve Hadley did is let, said, let's create a duplicate set of records. We're going to send the official ones to the presidential library, but we're going to have a duplicate set of everything that they need. So not, not all of the paper, of course, is necessary, but all of the most important stuff that they need. That would include uh, transcripts of memorandums of conversations with leaders, uh, readouts from uh, key meetings, the summaries of conclusions of key decision meetings that happened, all of this paperwork, which will help the incoming team figure out what is the situation. We're going to make a duplicate and have that duplicate in a separate safe ready for them the minute they take uh, control. Uh, moreover, we're going to, and this is the this gets to the heart of what's in the book, we're going to help them by writing summary memos of the main lines of action. So some 30 different lines of action that were either regionally oriented, you know, what were we trying to do in the Middle East or what were we trying to do in East Asia or functionally oriented? How were we approaching the problem of nuclear proliferation or um, uh, development of, uh, you know, economically disadvantaged states, et cetera. Provide a summary memo that would describe what was the situation that we found in 2001, when this incoming administration arrived, what did what were the challenges we faced? What did we try to do about them? What's the situation now? And you know what what lessons did we learn along the way? And of course, not everything we tried of in the eight years of the Bush administration worked. And so the memos were fairly candid in describing things we tried that didn't work and um, surprises that that came our way. But they also uh, documented where uh, we got it, what we thought was mostly right. And uh, these summary memos were highly classified and given to the Biden, uh, sorry, the incoming Obama team with the all of the folders of uh, auxiliary material that would help situate those memos. And 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 this is a long answer, so let me cut to the chase. What in this book that you described, Handoff, we got all of those memos, or 30 of them anyway, uh, declassified um, so that the, the, you can read them for yourselves. There are very few redactions, almost entirely declassified. You can read, this is the exact transition memo that was handed to the Obama team describing 
the situation as we saw it in 2008, 2009. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calitren Healthy Weight Loss. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitren. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 35 inches and 45 pounds. Calitren contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitren promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitren has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word PRESIDENT to 30605 and I'll send you a link for this special offer. Again, text PRESIDENT to 30605. The history of the Popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history. In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define the influence of the Popes of Rome and Church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform. Well, that's a great summary of, of basically of the book. One thing I'm curious about, as we all know, President Bush, his father, H, George H.W. Bush, was also president, and he had to transition the office to Clinton in 92. Was there a lot, and, and many of those staffers under George W. Bush's administration were part of that. So was there a lot learned from that particular transition? Yes. And in particular, uh, he also was part of President Bush 41, that is, part of the transition from Reagan to Bush. And that turns out to be one of the stormier transitions in the national security space, ironically enough, because you would think, well, it's a Republican to Republican, it's the president to the vice president, what could be the problem? It turns out uh, one of the problems was everybody in the Reagan administration thought they could just stay in place because they had been you know, part of the team before. And so Many were surprised when they received the notice from Brent Scrocroft, who was Bush, the President Bush's national security advisor, asking for their resignations. Uh, and they, uh, the Bush teams removed many, many, many of the Reagan folk and started with a, you know, a fairly clean slate of personnel. Um, and that introduced a, a separate kind of churn because that, you know, that, that created friction within uh, a given party's national security establishment. But you're right that President Bush, the son, had observed both of these things. Some of his key people, Condi Rice, Steve Hadley, others, uh, Vice President Cheney, had all served in either the Reagan or the Bush administration and so were familiar with all of this. And, and, and this is the other really important thing that I don't think the average listener is aware of. But President Bush, 43 now I'm talking about, came in believing that the institution of the presidency had suffered under the previous administrations, the, the scandals, some of the more, um, you know, the special prosecutor, some of the tawdry aspects of it. 
Whitewater, so forth. He wanted to restore respect for the institution and elevate the, the idea that the presidency, the office, is more important than the individual in it. And so much of his direction to the rest of the his team, President Bush, this is, was take steps that will elevate and protect the institution of the presidency. And one of them is let's recognize that when we're handing off the office to our successor, that's a solemn constitutional duty that we need to do utmost. We need to set the next guy up for success, even if the next guy got elected by bashing us and saying that we were the worst team in history, which is in fact what happened. So President Obama, as candidate, ran effectively against President Bush and the national security team as a bunch of incompetents who had made blunders. And President Bush's message to the team was, doesn't matter. He's the new president. We now have to set him up for success. We need to serve him, staff him for, as best we can so that he will be able to make the choices the electorate has chosen him to make, even if it's undoing the things that we're doing. But let's make sure he knows what we did and why we did it so that he can make his decisions with full information. It was very much a sort of principled institutionalist kind of approach that put party aside. Yeah, and, and full disclosure, I had been, for our listeners, I, I was a, a lowly White House staffer during that particular transition from Bush to Obama. And I just remember we were working, you know, the midnight oil uh, every day for the last like few weeks. And we were archiving tons of documents and putting things in boxes and sending them to the National Archives. And by law, you're required to do this. So it was a pretty stressful time, but it was something that we all had to do. And I remember there were a lot of uh, staffers that were training their successors. And here you are, you know, a staffer who had just the new party had come in criticizing your party and then you have to train them. So it was definitely a fascinating time. So the transition took place during a time of crisis, as is noted in the book. There was the Iraq war, the broader war on terror. And this is not that far removed from 9-11, so that was always ever-present in people's minds. And then, of course, the financial crisis of 2008 uh, from the collapse of the housing industry. And then, on top of that, you have the ever-present challenges of North Korea, Iran, Russia, uh, China. So let's go back to that time and just talk. If you could just kind of go through each of those issues and provide a little bit of context and, and how they were handed over to the Obama team. Sure. And, and let me just add a footnote to what you said about uh, your previous point about the burden on staff. Uh, remember that the president is still president until noon on Inauguration Day. So he is still implementing his policies, making his decisions. Every You have your regular job, your uh, current job, as you're preparing the new guy for the future job. So it, it is a, 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 a tough time on staff. Uh, to layer this extra burden on top of them. Um, and it, you know, some staff are leaving and, and that, you know, creates holes as well. So uh, just from the the business of running the government, it's a, it's a challenging, but it's also a fascinating time. Okay, as you pointed out, the 2008 transition was unusual. It was the first transition during a shooting war since 68-69. So there, we... Of course, it had a Cold War with enduring 
uh, Cold War challenges and crises and things, but but the Vietnam War, when LBJ handed a shooting war over to Nixon in 68-69, we were handing two shooting wars, three if you count the broader war on terror, a shooting war in Iraq, a shooting war in Afghanistan, and then the broader campaign against global terrorists. And you did not want to lose any momentum. You did not want to have the new team, uh, sorry, have your military paralyzed while the new team figures out what they want to do. On top of that, as 9-11 showed, terrorists had global reach and could reach the United States in ways that had only been imagined as, you know, myth or Hollywood script prior to 9-11. But now it's a very real prospect that that a terrorist might attempt an attack, say, on Inauguration Day, hoping to take advantage of the seam in leadership, where who would be the one to, you know, be in charge. So let's just take the terrorist threat uh, problem. That That's a... A very difficult, a terrorist attack is a very difficult crisis to manage, even though the new team, you know, President Obama had very experienced, uh, seasoned Democratic national security experts who had been involved in, um, you know, fighting bin Laden in the 90s, for instance. They did not know all that had been created in terms of U.S. capacity in the eight years of the Bush administration. <clears throat> and so they did not know what options they have and and what would be the second and third order implications if they use this or that option. So the national security team deve- uh, under Bush developed a series of exercises where they brought the Obama team, th- th- this they waited until it was clear that Obama was president-elect. So in the December timeframe, after the president-elect has been identified and now we're waiting confirmation, I mean, waiting inauguration. Well, Obama said, here are my people. These are the people who are going to be with me, you know, on day one. We, the Bush team made sure they had national security clearances so they could have access to all the information. And then they conducted exercises where we said, if the terrorists attack in the morning, here's what we could do. What, which of these things would you want us to do? If the terrorists attack at, you know, exactly at the moment of the inauguration, how are we going to work that out? You know, if, if the terrorists attack in the evening while you're still, you know, attending inaugural balls, here's the, the options that you have, et cetera. And it was a very practical, tactical run through. And many, many of the Obama people sing, singled that, those exercises out as especially helpful for them. So that they knew from day one, really from minute, second one, they knew what they could do and what they would, you know, the range of options that they would want to consider. And of course, this also strengthens deterrence because if you can credibly signal to a terrorist that they're not going to gain any advantage from attacking during this day, that helps dissuade them from doing so. So that's one very practical example. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and if, if, if you can kind of go through the list, so, uh, as far as the housing collapse, uh, there, there must've, I know it's not as much of a national security issue, but it was a lot of implications for that. Right. So let's do the financial crisis. So, um, one of the, the challenges in the financial crisis is that you could not wait until January 
when the new team was installed to take action because the markets weren't going to wait for that. Uh, you you had to uh, move to intervene, to reassure, to shore up so that the contagion did not spread and, and produce even more uh, economic catastrophe. Once it was identified that President uh, Obama was going to be the incoming president, then the two teams worked together quite closely to discuss steps that the U.S. Treasury was was thinking about taking. And even at we, the President Bush asked President Obama, do you want me to do this now or do you want to do it – do you want to hold and reserve so that you can have that choice yourself? And in some cases, particularly – uh, one that was politically very painful, the Obama administration incoming wanted the President Bush to do it so that he received the political you know, blame for it, basically, uh, e even though it was the necessary tonic for the economy, uh, it was going to be politically unpopular. And so they said, you, you know, they, they told the Bush administration, you do that. And the president said, OK, we'll do that. We'll 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 take that hit on our watch so that you will have more freedom on your watch uh, to respond as need be. And so there was very close coordination across the two economic teams. Similarly, take the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. The uh, this really got to the heart of how President Obama got elected. He got elected because he was opposed to the Iraq war. That's how he won the Democratic nomination. That's how he ran against McCain, who was obviously in favor of the Iraq war. So this was a sharp electoral rebuke of President Bush's Iraq policy, the 2008 election was. Nevertheless, President Obama was going to be commander in chief and we weren't going to be out of the war. He was going to have to manage the war. And so we talked to President Obama, uh, we being the Bush team, talked to the President Obama about decisions we were thinking of taking in the Iraq and in Afghanistan. And similarly said, do you want us to take them on our watch so that you know we pay the political price for that? Or do you want to delay so that you have a chance to assess? And in that case, in the Iraq and Afghanistan cases, the Obama team said they wanted to delay and let them reassess, which they did uh, in the spring. And eventually then they actually just uh, rubber stamped the plan that had been handed to them by the outgoing Bush team in the spring of, of uh, 2009. And that be it was called the Obama plan, but it was effectively the plan that they had, that we had left for them, the Bush team had left for them. Uh, and then Later on in 2009, they conducted yet another review in Afghanistan and came up with yet a different uh, way forward. And it's kind of uh, the, the, the classic adage in D.C. that campaigning is different than governing. When you're campaigning, you say things to appeal to certain groups. But once you're governing, the reality of, of the situation hits you and you, you kind of have to adjust your policies. And President Obama, that, that, that's what happened in that particular situation. Absolutely. If all you did was pay attention to campaign rhetoric, you would expect that the U.S. foreign policy lurched, you know, lurches dramatically left to right, left to right, and swings like a, a careening um, a car going down a, a hill or something. But in fact, there's way more continuity than change in American foreign policy. 
Uh, and that's because much of the campaign rhetoric exaggerates the downsides of policy and the upsides of alternatives. And it's because most administrations want to do what's best for American national interest and are working under you know constraints that will remain for the next administration. So that's not to say that there's no change whatsoever, but most administrations find that they don't have the freedom of maneuver that their campaign rhetoric implied that they would have. And so President Obama came in and effectively continued Bush's Iraq policy, uh, even though he criticized it, until 2012. That's when he broke with it, when he uh, decided to leave Iraq altogether, which had not been the plan. Uh, Bush administration had... uh, had a plan that said, we'll leave in 2012, but we're going to come back in 2013 under a new arrangement. And so we, the U.S. would never really leave. It would just change the terms under which it stayed. Uh, and the Obama administration said, no, we're going to leave Iraq altogether. Um, and that uh, that was a change. But it happened you know, four years into the administration rather than on day one, as his rhetoric implied. By the way, this is an important moment for me to flag the other half of the book, right? So the if the half of the book is the transition memos as they were written, declassified, and available, the other half of the book is we assembled the teams of people who wrote the original memos, NSC staffers for the most part, and asked them to write a updated memo. How does the situation look now, you know, some 10 to 15 years later? So it's kind of like a postmortem. Yeah, postscript, right. Now, you know, 15, with the benefit of hindsight, how do things look? What, you know, and, and grade your own homework. How did, how did you do? What, what things look better in hindsight? What things look worse in hindsight? How, what did choices subsequent administrations make? So what's the situation today, you know, and the, the choice set today? And that, that, the combination of those two things, the actual authentic memo at the time combined with a serious re- and candid reflection by that team 15 years later, that makes it a, a an unusual resource. I, I, it's a one of a kind. I don't know of any other book that has these two pieces uh, together. It makes it a great teaching uh, tool, but it's also fascinating for anyone who's interested in a particular line of policy because you can watch the evolution of the policy and also watch how the same team will reassess uh, their their uh, their work. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a great snapshot uh, of how things were then, and and also how things turn out. And as you're as a lot of these issues we're still deal, dealing with, uh, it's easy to kind of forget how things have evolved over that time. What you said, I, I think, was very interesting to me, and in, as far as continuity, because. Oftentimes, foreign observers will say, how does America do what they do with having elections every two years, a new president every four, eight years, uh, because it, it changes policy so frequently. Meanwhile, you look at other countries and like Russia, they have had the same leader, virtually the same leader for the last two plus decades. You said at the beginning of this uh, interview that there are there is a, a, a huge amount of turnover. So you do kind of lobotomize the government. You do essentially lose a lot of institutional knowledge. But 
somehow we're able to maintain a great deal of continuity because in a sense that's what the policy demands but there's also a lot of work that goes into that so i think that's probably reassuring for a lot of people that worry about how foreign policy has oscillated dramatically between bush to obama to trump to biden that there is still some sense of continuity and that the world can see some level of predictability despite all those transitions i think that's fair now not all continuity is good right uh, so i'll give you a a, a, an example, President Biden effectively continued and implemented President Trump's Afghanistan policy. So President Trump tried to get out of Afghanistan regardless of consequences, negotiated a deal with the Taliban in 2020 that had the U.S. committed to leave no matter what, even if the Taliban didn't honor their side of the agreement, which they didn't. President Biden came in and basically said, yeah, we're going to complete a Trump's plan. So that there's continuity. Uh, but it was a disaster, a strategic disaster. So sometimes continuity is, is a mistake when what is needed is a change. If the, the previous administration's on the wrong trajectory, then continuity is not the answer. But some of the more flamboyant and simplistic campaign slogans, things that sort of work well when you're in a rally, but they, they're they too, you know, too uh, simplistic to be viable in real life. Those kinds of things are what get um, stripped away. Now, all of this was up until President Trump. Trump, in in some ways, broke the mold because he showed greater willingness than any previous president to defy constraints, if you will, of norms in American foreign policy. Uh, and he was willing to take risks that other administrations were not willing to take. Most of those risks turned out to be costly blunders that didn't work out well, but he broke the, the mold. And his the transition for, uh, you know, the irony, uh, speaking about transitions, the irony is the Obama people, having had this great transition in 2008, really wanted to have a similar, he wanted to even beat the Bush people, you know, uh, in 2016 by having the best transition ever, you know, improving. And many of the things that the Bush administration did as a, a pilot project in 2008 became codified in the interval and said, now, now you have to do that in 2016. So the Obama team were absolutely primed and ready to do the handoff again. Unfortunately, there was no one to hand it off to. So the, the Trump team was not ready for it. They had completely punted on transition planning. Part of key transition plan is you have to plan for the transition before you've won the election so that you're ready to go the minute the election is called. And then in 2016, the Trump team didn't do that. Uh, and the president himself, President Trump, clearly didn't think he was going to win. So why bother planning the transition? And once they did win, the, the few uh, transition efforts that had been underway uh, under Governor Christie were thrown out and they began afresh on election night. And so the, the outgoing Obama team were deeply frustrated because there was no one to hand off to. Uh, and the Trump team uh, started far behind the power curve, much further than any previous administration has done. Uh, just because they weren't ready for the handoff. So in some ways, the unusual nature of the President Trump's candidacy and the way he ran business contributed to a, a very rocky transition in 2016. And then, of course, the 2020 transition was even rockier still.
And I have to imagine that, I mean, there, there was always going to be a, a great deal of acrimony, uh, a great level of acrimony between the Obama and Trump team as it was without the added issue of the preparedness, uh, you know, uh, for that transition. So that must have been a very rocky one. I mean, it must have made the Bush-Obama transition look, I mean, it must have made that one look like basically the smoothest in all of American history. Well, yes, although let's be, uh, I don't want to whitewash history. The Obama team very much believed that that they were taking over, taking the keys of the car from a team that had wrecked dad's car and run it into the ditch, basically. This is in 2009. And so they were willing to listen to the Bush administration, but only up to a point, you know, because they believed and they had won election they believe that the Bush team had made you know so many mistakes that they didn't know what they were talking about. It's only in hindsight that we see, oh, actually the Biden teams, I mean, sorry, the Obama team saw, oh, in hindsight, maybe they weren't quite the idiots we thought they were. Well, fast forward to 2016, absolutely the Trump team thought that the Obama team were idiots uh, and had wrecked the car. Um, and, you know, that those feelings were mutual, uh, I think, uh, in 2016, going both ways. Um, and it, it was compounded by the difficulty of just not having the team assembled. The Trump team was slow to, to come together. I, I want to amend one thing I said about 2020. The 2020 transition was extremely rocky if you looked at the president's level. But if you go one level below that, the, and particularly in the national security space, actually uh, O'Brien, who was his national security advisor at the end of his tenure, Trump's national security advisor, did try to run a traditional national security transition enterprise. And of course, the Biden team was very uh, experienced and, and were ready to receive it. And so that at just at the level of staff to staff handoff 2020 wasn't as bad as it looked from the outside uh because of the work done by O'Brien and his staff but it's the stuff above him at the presidential level that was was uh chaotic and really without precedent in American history so having uh been a co-editor of this book and and have seen the process what do you want the American people to know about these transitions? Well, the, the first thing that I hope the, the public takes away from this is a recognition that um, that administrations are teams of people who are reflecting the personality and the caliber of the president. So the president sets the strategy, sets the energy, sets the tone, and in the case of this book, President Bush was was really laser focused on handing over, from a legacy point of view, handing over the wars to the next president so the next president could make the best decisions that they could. And that President Bush was not trying to score points before he handed over the ball uh, and, you know, just to pad something. He was trying to empower the next guy. And that message flowed down to the team, the rest of the team. And it's a team effort. So there's literally hundreds, thousands of people involved in, in the transition across the government uh, who are basically um, either civil servants, meaning that they're you know staying in the government and they 
they saluted President Bush on in the morning and saluted President Obama in the afternoon, and that's just what they do. That's part of their professional ethos. Or they were the political appointees who go in and out, um, and so they're more politically associated with one party. But in most cases, and this applies to the Republicans I know and to the Democrats I know, in most cases, they are genuinely trying to do what's best for the country. And if they have disagreements, they're often, almost always, principled disagreements. And that means that there's a capacity to work across party to set each other up for success. I think folks who've worked inside have, a, have an intellectual humility that comes with realizing how difficult this job is. And you've made mistakes uh, because it's just too hard not to make mistakes. And if you're on the outside and sitting in the cheap seats, it's easy just to you know, send nasty tweets complaining about the mistakes. Much, much harder to be inside doing it. The analogy I draw is it's easier to be the pigeon pooping on the sculptor than it is to be the sculptor making it. And if you've been in, inside making the sculpture, you have a certain amount of intellectual humility that causes you to want to help the next team so that they don't make a mistake themselves. And so that's a big takeaway is to recognize the character of the president matters and the st the staff to staff handoff matters. Okay. So Professor Peter Fever, co-editor of the book, Handoff, the Foreign Policy, George W. Bush Passed to Barack Obama. Uh, it's a very interesting book um, about uh, a moment that really happens often behind the scenes, but is very critical to just the American tradition of uh, peaceful transfers of power. Uh, and it's also a great snapshot of what the world looked like at the time and how things have turned out. So, Professor Fever, thank you so much for being on our, our podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President.